Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the wonderful Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for blessing us with our worship this morning. We had a wonderful time on Thursday of fellowship at our home, answering questions as a a new members Q&A about HHBC, talking about membership and what it means, why it matters. Not only that we might be accountable to a body believer, to a body of believers, that, but that somebody is accountable for us as well. If you couldn't make it last Thursday, perhaps you've been a visitor for a while, you'd like to know more about HHBC or have questions about membership or baptism, please don't be shy to pull me aside. I'd love to spend some time with you. Well, we were greatly saddened to see that the war in Ukraine this week only escalated. We keep those people in our prayers, the Russians and the Ukrainians, as they suffer under this. And if you recall, last week at our opener, we looked to the epistle of James, chapter 4, where James put his finger on the reason for fighting and for war, for contention, for unrighteous anger. Whether it be in the Ukraine or at the dinner table, James tells us that we have a battle being waged inside of ourselves. We desire but we can't have, so we fight and we murder. That the kingdom of God and the kingdom of creation wage a war within us. Both desire our affections and our loyalty, and they battle, James says. And that desire is driving our actions, our speech, our thought patterns, whether it be good, bad, or otherwise. Did you know, beloved, that at every given moment in your life, you are doing exactly what you want to do? Think about that for a moment. We didn't say you're doing what you most enjoy doing all the time, but you are doing what you desire. You see a highest perceived benefit or value for doing what you are doing. Say, what do you mean? Sitting at a job you dislike, even disdain? You're telling me that I desire this? Yep. You may not enjoy that job, but your highest desire is what it provides. Going to the worst job in the world, you are doing what you desire. Turn on a show, eat a meal, go to sleep, read a book, help a stranger on the side of the road, come to church, don't come to church. At any given moment, we are doing what we most desire, good, bad, or otherwise. That's how powerful desire is. And we must see this because desire, James says, is waging war within us. And again, when we hear the word desire, we think illicit desire, right? We think something bad, something we shouldn't want. Not at all. If you're hungry, there will come a time in the day while you're busy filling another highest desire that hunger replaces that, becomes your highest desire. So what do you do? You eat. Say, well, I wasn't even hungry, but the wife said, dinner was ready, so I came. Was that my highest desire? Yes, it was. You desired something at that table. Time with the wife and kids, you pick it. You came to the table because it was your highest desire. What about the hard things, the painful things, the selfless acts? Still our highest desire. You threw yourself in front of an oncoming vehicle to save another person's life. That was your highest desire at that moment. Every person sitting here in church this morning or listening online is doing so because it is their highest desire at this moment. 
I could see a teenager sitting here this morning saying, ha, this was not my highest desire to be in church. My parents dragged me here. Yes, it is. Your highest desire may not have been to come to church, but it was to avoid an argument or a perceived reward or punishment for going or not going. Yes, being here is your highest desire, whatever the reason or motivation might be. You may be running towards something or away from something, but we are all doing what we most desire at every given moment in our life. And I belabor the point because we must see how we work and how we function as humans. The power of desire in our life because it's running everything. Not only is it running everything, but now this enormous power is actually doing battle within me. And what is that battle over? The battle is over a question. Will the kingdom of God or will the kingdom of creation form and shape that desire or that action or that spoken word? The engine of your car, so to speak, is desire. And saints, you're not changing that engine. The engine is pulling you forward whether you want to or not. The question is, who's driving? Who's driving? The engine isn't smart. It just runs. Desire runs and runs and runs in the background. It's mounted. It's fixed. It's not changing. It just runs. Going constantly, pulling you forward. Desire is like breathing. You don't even have to think about it. It's running constantly. But who's driving? You're going forward. The engine of desire is pulling you no matter what, and it never turns off. But who's steering? That's the battle. Staying still is not an option. We're going forward. We will always fill our highest desires. But what will it be? Where will it steer us? When the kingdom of God is driving, with the engine of desire running full, it's a blessing. We no longer have a kingdom of our own that we need to protect and serve. We no longer punish those around us for not serving in our kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom of creation. It's passing. It's fading. It's fickle. It's never satisfied. It's discontent. It demands that others bow in service to it. Someone cut you off and stole your primo parking spot at Walmart. They just got in the way of our desire. What will you do in your heart in that moment, which will likely overflow out of your mouth, Luke 6 says, right? Are, you wor- are we worried about our created kingdom, that black hole of need that will never and could never be filled? Or is it the kingdom of God that's driving? The kingdom of God doesn't care about losing a parking spot. In fact, it rejoices in losing a parking spot because in God's kingdom, he's orchestrating the details of my life and he's working out the events for my eternal good and for his glory. Saints, if we can wrap our minds around this, our lives will change. We will be free, free to rest in the sovereignty of a good God with no need to fight for what's mine, for what I think I'm owed. It's hard work, constantly collecting homage to our corrupt little kingdoms, making sure that everyone is paying their dues. Beloved, we are owed one thing, death and hell, and Jesus has defeated both. There is a battle, James says. Every moment of every day, who's driving? 
That engine, beloved, that engine of desire, it is pure Ferrari. That means great trouble with the wrong driver. Great trouble. There is a battle. So this day, this hour, that choice, that word, that thought, may the kingdom of God be driving. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we finished our two-part series on the transfiguration. I understand we had some technical issues with our audio, and we have restored that. So if you missed that last week online, check back. It is there now. You won't want to miss that. Because we witnessed an amazing scene. Atop Mount Hermon, in the cool of the air, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. His clothing whiter than white, his face being altered, shining like the diamonds, And if that were not enough to contemplate and behold, in all of its splendor, Jesus was joined by Elijah and Moses. And we gave considerable time to address many of the questions that are raised by such a very unusual event. Two Old Testament figures appearing in the New Testament in body before Jesus. It begs a thousand questions, and we endeavor to answer many of them. And some answers we simply don't know. I was asked the great question of how the disciples knew it was Elijah and Moses. We aren't told. We aren't told. Yet our scene atop this mountain was pregnant with theological implications and with truths to glean. And as we begin coming back down the mountain today, we peer into a fascinating discussion that's happening amongst the four. Jesus, Peter, James, and John as they're still in doubt in this, semi, this state of semi-shock and bewilderment. They're seeing that all hopes of a kingdom without a cross continue to fade. While not completely understood, indeed even after the crucifixion, they still did not understand, it was clear that the ushering in of the kingdom of God was going to look nothing like what they expected. So with that, let's look at our text this morning. Mark 9. 9 through 13. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they began asking him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say, that Elijah must come first. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible continuity of your word that we're going to see this morning. We thank you for preserving this. We thank you for showing the disciples as they were, not as high and lifted up and otherworldly men, but as men who were fallible and who wanted to understand and who struggled, Lord, just as many of us do here this morning. Holy Spirit, as always, we ask that you would attend to your word, that the arrow would find its mark. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, some time ago, perhaps 20 years ago now, I 
hesitated whether or not to use this analogy, but there was a comedy movie with Robin Williams called Mrs. Doubtfire. And some of you may remember it. Basically, the plot line of the movie is that Robin Williams is dressing up as a woman to get hired as the nanny so he can be with and so he can be with and take care of his children that he's been separated from in a divorce. Well, through various humorous events, the children finally learn that this woman in disguise was actually their dad. And after the truth being discovered by the children, you, you see these scenes where they're just staring at this man in disguise. Now knowing who he really was, in bewilderment, they're, they're touching his rubber face and they're pulling on his wig. They can never see their nanny the same way again, knowing who he really was. It changed everything. And of course, they were forbidden from telling anyone who he really was. Of course, the secret eventually got out. Well, today I can only imagine that the disciples will never look at Jesus the same. They saw a peek behind the curtain, a temporary and restrained removal of Jesus' veil of humanity. Imagine them sitting around a fire at night, just like the children in Mrs. Doubtfire, just staring at him. Because you know who he really is now. What you see is not what you get. We must understand that these three men have been changed. Yes, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ in Caesarea Philippi. It was the proclamation of the ages. Flesh and blood could not reveal that to Peter, but only God the Father. He knew it. Peter knew in Caesarea Philippi, but now, how do we say this? He knew it. He knew it. It's the thrust of Paul's words to Timothy when he says, but I am not ashamed for I know in whom I have believed. You could never go to any one of those children in that movie after they saw what they saw and convince them that it was not really their dad. You couldn't. It's been often said that the man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an argument. These men have tasted and seen. They have experienced. But as we'll see in our text, increased revelation with our finite minds often bring increased questions. And even a command from the master to keep quiet. Isn't that amazing? Let's look at our first verse. Verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Let's look back at our first part here. And as they were coming down from the mountain, I have to say no kidding. We're talking physically and we're talking metaphorically. They are coming down in elevation and in elation. Mark is not just relaying a change in geography for these disciples. They're about to come careening back down to reality. Like Paul who has been taken up to the third heaven, right? Seeing things that are so magnificent that he couldn't even repeat them. And thereafter writing that he longed to go home, to go back to that glory, but it was more needful that Paul remain with the churches. And no doubt, the disciples longed to not only stay in the amazing presence, seeing the very people, Elijah and Moses, that they had read about their entire lives, but what do humans do when something amazing happens to us? Or when we see something amazing, what do we want to do? We want to tell someone. 
It's our first and our natural instinct. Relay, relay, tell, tell. And now we have seen the ultimate on the mountain. You wouldn't believe what we have seen. And you wouldn't believe who we have seen. And Jesus says, no. He gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen. We've seen this phenomenon of Jesus commanding silence many times throughout the Gospels. Some refer to it as the Masonic secret, or I think better labeled the command to silence. And we've covered this topic in previous messages, and in truth, it's a message unto itself. But for the sake of brevity, why is Jesus commanding silence here? Why not go broadcast to the world what you've seen? We do, in fact, live to make the name of Jesus famous. Why this command to silence? Well, it depends on the instance that Jesus is commanding it. We remember the times that Jesus commanded the demons to silence, right? Those were different reasons. The demons meant to harm Jesus. They meant to harm his reputation. Not only that, but it's kind of like politics, right? There are some endorsements you'd rather not have. Thanks very much. But that's different than what we see here today. We see other times throughout the Gospels where Jesus commands either his disciples or someone else he had healed in some way to remain silent. And of course, many did not obey that command, right? And we wound up seeing the first consequence of Jesus being inundated with people to the point that it hindered his movement. It stopped his ministry. Second, Jesus' command to silence was most often often followed a miracle. People followed him. Why? For the miracles. They followed Jesus for the show to get a healing from him. Jesus did not come for the miracles. He was unlike any miracle worker to come before him or after. He was not to be known or to have notoriety as a miracle worker. That's not why he came. Why did Jesus come? 1 John 3.8 But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to save his people from their sin. He did not come to be a miracle worker, nor did he desire to be known as a two-bit miracle worker. Another reason Jesus commanded silence. Why else? Because God's timetable was in effect. Everything up to Jesus' arrest and death are on the perfect timetable of the Father. And this is a timetable set from the foundation of the earth, just like your election to salvation in Ephesians 1. And we saw the more popularity that Jesus gained, the more attention he drew. What does he do? What did Jesus do when the attention got to be too much, where he risked a premature arrest by the Pharisees? He would leave the area. Another reason for the secrecy. Another reason for the command to silence. So there are varying reasons for the command from Jesus to be silent about who he was and and what he had done. But how about today's text? Why today? Recall even recently back in Caesarea Philippi when Peter makes his grand profession about the identity of Christ. What does it say? It says that Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Very similar to what we see here today. This all boils back to the disciples' understanding. Yes, Peter had confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, and he was right. But did Peter yet understand what it means to be Messiah? 
To be Messiah means that I'm going to have to come and die on a cross. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected. That's the central plan of the ages. And if you don't get that yet, if the reality and the beauty and the truth of God's plan to save a people unto himself is not your understanding, if that's not your anthem cry in the market square, then you need to be quiet because that's an incomplete gospel. Right now, your good news is good news because you think Messiah has come to restore Israel. You don't have the full picture yet. But when will it come? Look back at verse 9. When can the disciples reveal what they've seen? Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now you have a gospel. Now you have good news. Go into all the world and proclaim that good news to every creature. Go yell it from the mountaintops that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But not now. But not now. You've seen a lot, but you still don't get it. But joyfully, we see that the disciples obeyed. In fact, Luke's account tells us, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Can you imagine? The disciples obeyed. Lanesville 2022, why do you care about that? Why do you care? Because it tells us that we obey even when we don't understand. This dis- these disciples did not understand, but they obeyed. Daniel Hill tells about a man who was visiting an African mission center. And the missionary, he was showing him around the compound, showing him all the different buildings and what was happening. And a missionary's son was over there playing under a tree when the missionary suddenly turned and shouted, down on the ground. And the child obeyed and dropped to the ground. And then he ordered, crawl toward me. And again, the child obeyed. It was only after the boy was safely away from the tree that the visitor saw that poisonous snake hanging from the limb right over where the boy was playing. The child was obedient, even though he didn't know what was going on. We obey even when we don't understand. But the Lord has brought up an interesting topic here. He's brought up an interesting topic. He's brought up one that is near and dear to every Jewish person's heart in ancient Israel, and it provokes some discussion. So let's look at verse 10 here. Oh, this is about to get good. Verse 10. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Well, this seizing that Mark is speaking of is kind of like when you're walking along listening to someone and they say something that you grab onto, that perks you up, that snatches you out of your thoughts. Jesus is speaking about his resurrection from the dead. That's invaded their thoughts of what has just happened up on the mountain. And it's focused them intently on the Son of Man rising from the dead. Well, the doctrine or the teaching of future resurrection, that was well known to any Jew. They fully expected a general resurrection at the end of history. This was taught by the Pharisees. In fact, this was the main point of conflict between Pharisees and Sadducees was the issue of the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees affirmed it. The Sadducees denied it. But this was a well-known doctrine. So it wasn't the concept of resurrection that the disciples are struggling with here. It was this resurrection 
that they're struggling with. It was Messiah's resurrection. As we've belabored many times, when the Jewish think Messiah, they think ruling and reigning, not suffering and death. How hard is it? How much work is it when we have a thought process ingrained into us that needs to change? Oh, the disciples still wouldn't get it. Not even, not even until Jesus rose. But even then, they still needed Jesus to stand in front of them and ascend before them. The noetic effects of sin, which we've taught on before, makes us a thick-headed people. It makes us a thick-headed people. Praise the Lord for his irresistible grace that overcomes our sinful nature and draws us to himself. I know all of us think, had we been there, had we been those disciples, had it been us, we would have gotten it. I mean, how could you not have? But we wouldn't have. We would have been just as the disciples were. To try and impose or to force our preconceived notions onto the clear words of the Lord, onto the clear words of Scripture, is going to bring heartache, it's going to bring error, and it's going to bring sin. Unfortunately, we will see that the disciples' thoughts on how it should be will continue to reign supreme. We're going to see this right around the corner in Mark 10 when James and John are still fussing about what? Who's going to sit at your right hand? In your kingdom, theirs is still a reigning and earthly Messiah, still not a crucified Messiah. Instead of saying, Lord, I don't understand it, but you have spoken it and it is so, the disciples will continue to fight it in their hearts. And don't we do that, beloved? Don't we have areas of our life and of our doctrine where we sit in judgment over Scripture? where we put our word above his, if not in word, perhaps in practice, or even in heart attitude. It says that they've seized upon Jesus' statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. There should be no argument, really. Jesus has spoken of it numerous times up to this point. Yet here we still are. But we can see the working of the human mind and the disciples here. How do our minds work when we're trying to wrestle a hard saying, perhaps a hard doctrine, which is exactly what the disciples are trying to do here, by the way. We say, well, if this is this, then what about that? Watch verse 11 here. Watch verse 11, exactly what happens with the disciples. Verse 11, and they began asking him saying, why is it that the, that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Can you see their wheels turning? They had all their puzzle pieces all nicely in place. And now with their suffering servant, with their murdered Messiah, the pieces don't fit anymore. So if that's the case, Jesus, if you're going to be killed and you're going to be resurrected, then explain this. Why is it that the the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And it's a logical question. Malachi 4 is clear. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. But wait, those of you who took careful notes last Sunday see the category error that the disciples just made. What have they confused here? What what have they conflated? They've conflated the resurrection of Messiah with what? The second coming. 
Now, we cannot fairly say confused or conflated, really, because they knew of no such thing as the second coming, right? Depicted in Scripture as the great and the terrible day of the Lord. To the Jew, there wasn't two comings of Messiah. There was one. There was only one. And when he gets here, he will be here on earth and will set all to right. Complete military victory. Israel restored to greatness. There's no such thing as a second coming to an ancient Jew. So the disciples are having to take this in layers. Imagine being taught something totally foreign to you. Different than you've ever been taught your entire life. And the person that's saying it is backing it up. In fact, he just transfigured before you. So wait, wait a minute. Let's just say this is all true. And why didn't Elijah come? That's why so many people thought Jesus was Elijah, didn't they? Well, he had to be. Jesus couldn't be Messiah because Elijah would have already been here steamrolling a path for him. But now for Peter, James, and John, Elijah has just appeared. He was there on the mountain. But how does this all work together? What does this all mean? Put my theological puzzle together, Jesus, because you just wrecked it. And Jesus, ever the patient teacher, look at his response here in verse 12. Look at verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. Let's pause there for a moment. First words out of Jesus' mouth is, you're right. You're right. Jesus, Elijah does come first. Elijah does come to prepare the way. But Jesus gives a mild rebuke here in the second part of verse 12. Look at this. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You have Malachi 4. Elijah is clearly there. He's clearly a forerunner to the coming Messiah. That's all true. But we don't get to pick and choose our scripture. While Malachi 4 speaks truth, it's not the whole truth. Yes, we have Malachi 4, but we also have Isaiah 53. Many of you have looked at our banner, our series, our banner series here for a year and a half now. What is the title of Isaiah 53? What does the gospel of Mark portray Messiah to be? The suffering servant. The suffering servant. Listen to what Jesus is saying here in verse 12. Yes, we have Malachi 4. And yes, Elijah does come first. But it is written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and he will be treated with contempt. Isaiah writes, surely he took, upon our, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, and we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished." This was read in the synagogue. They grew up with this. 
The psalmist cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. I find no rest. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. The foretelling of a suffering servant has been there all along. We don't get to stand on Malachi 4 and skip or misread the rest. The crucifixion of Jesus was a complete shocker. But should it have been? Beloved, when Psalm 22 that we just read was written, crucifixion did not exist. It didn't exist. Yet he speaks of piercing hands and feet. Your heart turning to wax. That's signifying breathing difficulties. All of these are crucifixion. His scourging, his denial by men, his mistreatment, even being thirsty on the cross, it's all there. And yet the disciples seem shocked that he says the Son of Man will be crucified and he'll suffer. We are not cafeteria Christians, beloved. Walking down the buffet of Scripture, picking and choosing what we put on our plate. The Bible is an all or nothing proposition and we are without excuse And Jesus is telling his disciples here in verse 12, it is written. It's written. You listen to it in your synagogue. You knew this from a babe. The Son of Man will suffer many things and he'll be treated with contempt. Why do you marvel? This should not be a shock to you. But you have read your scripture through the lens of your current politics. The situation you find yourself in with occupying Romans, of having a national Israel that needs to be restored, that's been your focal. Saints, what happens when we read Scripture in light of a political movement or a situation? What happens when we read Scripture through the lens of being a member of an aggrieved party or an aggrieved person group? It's nothing new. It's all over today. We have the feminist reading of the Bible. We have a black liberation theology reading of the Bible. We have a social justice Bible. We have an environmentalist Bible. You name it, we have it. Taking Scripture and putting on the lens of our politics or perceived aggrieved status in society is to miss the meaning of the text. We will misread it, misapply it, and ultimately miss it entirely. That's what happens in various movements today. That's exactly what has happened with the disciples here. You saw what you wanted to see in light of your situation or your position in society or life. However tempting, we must not do that. Remember, beloved, a verse in Scripture has one meaning. And if that meaning would not have been understood by the original audience hearing it, that's not the meaning. This principle of reading our Bible rightly will save us from tremendous error. And he said to them, Elijah does come first. 
and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Well, Jesus continues to unfold this verse. Verse 13, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. That final verse, you don't know how tempting it was for your pastor to do a message just on that. There is a field of treasures in here, but I need you to hang on and dig deep. Broad strokes. Who, what are, what are, who are we talking about here? Well, we need to rotate the gospel diamond, as the Puritans called it. Look at Matthew and Luke's account. No need to turn there. I'll read it for you. But we don't need to guess what we're talking about. He tells us, Matthew 17, But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Okay, thank you very much. If we go to the beginning of Luke's gospel, that speaks of the coming and the birth of John the Baptist, right? And we read, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is verbatim Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So there's no doubt what we're trying to say here. However, there is much, much more to it than that. So back to our text, verse 13. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Well, it would be very easy to get in the weeds on this, so we'll try to keep it very simple. In John 1.21, John the Baptist was asked if he was Elijah. And how did he respond? He said, no, I'm not. John the Baptist knew what they meant. He knew that they were asking about the physical, literal return of Elijah. He says, I'm not him. Scripture says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So what's the difference? Why the distinction? Did John the Baptist fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4 or not? You're going to love this answer. Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. Not in the literal and the complete sense. However, some may remember us teaching about types and antitypes in Scripture. Do you remember that? Old Testament types, whether it be people or places or even objects that find their fulfillment or their completion in the New Testament or at a later time. Well, here's what's fascinating about Elijah and John the Baptist. They will both fulfill type and anti-type roles. One of the very few places in Scripture we see this. Follow me here. We're almost there. Start at the beginning. When Jesus says above, And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Well, he's quoting 2 Kings 19. And what happens in 2 Kings 19? Here we have King Ahab and Jezebel seeking or wishing to kill Elijah. Watch this fulfillment. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel. Now go forward to John the Baptist. King Herod, Herodias, did kill John the Baptist. Is there a better fulfillment of type and I type than Ahab to Herod and Jezebel to Herodias? 
That is why Mark, that's why Mark recorded the story of John's death in Mark 6. It was to show us that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecies about Elijah. H.B. Sweet, he writes, quote, In this case, Scripture had foretold the future, not by prophecy, but by a type. The fate intended for Elijah had overtaken John, close quote. But wait, so now we're about to reverse roles. Hang on. You just saw John the Baptist fulfilling what was meant for Elijah, and now it gets reversed. John the Baptist is now a type of, a type of anti-type. Elijah, John the Baptist, excuse me, Elijah was John the Baptist, was the forerunner at Christ's first coming. Elijah will be the forerunner at Christ's second coming. Oh, I know it sounds confusing. We'll dig in. John the Baptist would prepare the way for the hearts of men for the first coming, for the first advent of Christ. He would make straight a path, Isaiah 40. But how does that work? Consider Jesus talking about the ministry of John the Baptist in Matthew 11. Jesus tells us about it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, listen, saints, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. This is critical. Question, was the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, willing to accept the message of John the Baptist? No. Did he turn the heart of the nation toward Messiah? No. Had Israel received John the Baptist's message, Jesus said he would have been Elijah, but they didn't, so he's not. Which means what? That means Elijah is still to come. You see how the type and anti-type roles just got flipped? Bear in mind, beloved, when most people think John the Baptist, because he's in the Gospels, they think John the Baptist, New Testament, right? When I said John the Baptist, I bet you thought New Testament, but he wasn't. Remember, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is Old Testament, it's easy to forget that. So the fulfillment is yet to come. Because Israel did not listen, John was just a preview of Elijah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah if they were willing to accept it. But they were not. Elijah coming as prophesied is still to come. Still to come. Now many are of the opinion, and I share this opinion, that Elijah will be one of the witnesses that will return in Revelation 11. And just as John was beheaded and killed as the forerunner at the first advent of Christ, the two witnesses will also be killed by the Antichrist. The prophecy of Malachi 4 will have its true fulfillment at the second coming. John denied he was Elijah. I'm inclined to take him at his word. Thus, Elijah is still to come, and indeed has come, if we have ears to hear. I pray that we have ears to hear this morning. There are many takeaways from this text, some harder to follow, but the message is plain. Even though the disciples could not see it through the fog of their preconceived notions, Jesus must die. It was always the plan, but there is a plan. 
from Genesis to Elijah to John the Baptist and back to Elijah, the word of God is true and trustworthy. Our God knows the end from the beginning and he's working out that plan on a global scale and in the lives of those who will hear his voice. So take great comfort in the incredible intricacy of God's planning and his fulfillment, how he's done all things well. He's the one who holds our life in his hands and he is good and he can be trusted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text today. Lord, some of it is hard to follow and Lord, it's easy to get into the weeds on. Lord, we know what we take away. Your plan is from everlasting to everlasting. You know the end from the beginning. Lord, not only as this world goes, but Lord, as our lives go, that your hand is in it, that every hair of our head is numbered. Lord, we ask that we live in expectation of you coming. Lord, we live in expectation of all being made right of all being made new, of a new Jerusalem, Lord, where there won't be any more tears, there won't be any more death. Lord, we know that that day is coming. We live in earnest expectation of it. Lord, we ask that you keep us this week until the saints can gather again. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we approach your table, Lord, that we prepare our hearts. We do not take this means of grace lightly. As always, if there be any sin in our lives, if there be any grievous way in us, forgive us and lead us in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, we ask that you show us both our sins of commission and of omission. And we cry out with the psalmist that you would restore unto us the joy of our salvation, washing our slate clean by your blood that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. Amen.